Thank you so much to Nick and the team and Dave for praying for us. It's such an encouragement to come and worship together. I trust that you've been encouraged as much as I have this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We are carrying on in our series contending for the gospel from the letter of Paul to Timothy. And this morning we'll be looking at a larger chunk. Um, as I was preparing, I couldn't uh, not preach the whole section. And, and so we're going to look at chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 2 together. And, and as you'll see, I trust uh, we should view these things together or can view them together. Let's read from chapter 1, verse 5. This is God's Word. Is inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's hear it. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So, I would have younger women, widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who will well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture say, says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on, hand, laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve them all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Only so far in the reading of God's Word, may He reform our lives to its truth. There is an important question we need to ask that every single one of us has to wrestle with, and that question is this, how do you see the church? How do you view the church? As you came into the building this morning, did you come with a love for those here as brothers and sisters in Christ? When you came to the building this morning, did you come with a desire to lift up others before yourself, to honor them? As you came to this building this morning, did you come with a willingness and a desire to even care for others, to share of yourself for the sake of others? As you came to this building this morning, did you come with a conviction that you belong to these people, that this is your people. If you haven't, then I suggest you, you haven't thought of the church rightly, and you haven't thought of the church as a family. Perhaps like so many, you think of the church as an event. You think of the church as an event that's here to entertain you, you're here to, to witness something, to hear some teaching, to experience some singing, and you come to the church to, to receive, to be entertained, to consume, and therefore you see others in the church perhaps as a hindrance, perhaps as not here for, for your ultimate God. You're not here for them, you're, you're here for what you can get out of them. Or perhaps, like so many, you think of the church as a charity. You're here to, to give, right? You're here to, to do the right thing, to worship God, to be religious, to be moral. And so you give of yourself, but you're not really here to receive. And so you treat others not as being in the position to, to speak into your life, to hold you accountable, to come alongside you and exhort and encourage you. Or perhaps you think of the church as a project. There's things to be done. There's ministries to run. There's people to speak to about the gospel. Things need to get done. And so you see the church as just a tick box, something to do. And therefore you see others as, as tools or even, again, as, as a hindrance. May I suggest you, in contrast to all of these things, the way we ought to view the church is as a family. That's where our passage starts. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 to 2. Paul exhorts Timothy to have a right view of the church, namely to see and treat the church as a family. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, a younger man as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. 
Do you see how, how Paul sees the church? The church is a family because those in the church are your fathers and your mothers and your brothers, your sisters. And if this is true of Timothy's, if this is how Timothy ought to view the church, then how much more so should we not view the church in this way? See, so realize the church is not just this building, it's not just this event, it's not just some charity we give to, it's not just some project we're involved in. No, the church is a family we belong to. A family where we come alongside one another for one another. That's what that word encourage means in verse 1. It means to come beside one another and to call to one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to care for one another. It means to, to be, have a vested interest and a concern for others. That's how a family ought to behave. That's how we ought to live as the family of God. Now, what I find interesting in this passage is how Paul teases this out, how he teases out what this encouragement looks like. Paul says to Timothy, see the church as a family and encourage the church as you would a family. But then Paul turns to address three groups of people in the church. And he essentially says, honor one another. And notice the repetition of the word honor in chapter 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Look at chapter 5, 17. Let the elders who will be, who will be considered worthy of double honor. Or, or chapter 6, verse 1. That all those who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Realize not only does the theme of honor tie this section together, but it also shows us what it looks like for the church to encourage one another as a family. If you had to ask Paul, Paul, how should we encourage one another as a family? I think Paul would say, you encourage one another as you honor one another, as you revere and respect one another. And in Paul's mind, as you'll see, the idea of honoring you is more than just a mental respect. No, no, it's far more than that. It's, it's practical. It has to do with how we care for one another. It has to do with how we relate to one another. It has to do with how we serve each other in the church. And to see this, I want us to look at uh, how Paul exhorts Timothy and us in this passage, how he exhorts us to encourage or honor one another in the church as the family of God. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that church is a family that cares for those in need. The church is a family that cares for those in need. In chapter 5, verse 3 to 13, Paul addresses the issue of widows in the church. Now, to make sense of this passage, we need to realize that the church in Ephesus had committed itself to, to care for widows. Yet, as often is the case, unfortunately, certain people were taking advantage of the church's benevolence. And so in this section, Paul addresses this problem, and he essentially says that the church should support widows if two qualifications are met. Firstly, they must be true widows, i.e. they must be truly in need. And two, they must be godly widows, upright, marked by good works, with their hope and faith set in God. 
uh, to, to, to see this, take a look at the structure that Paul has. It's a bit complicated. In verses 3 to 16, he, he gives four contrasts, and you see this contrast in the word but that's report, repeated four times. You see that in verse 4 and 6, 8 and 11. And after these contrasts, he, he gives a summary. Now, the first contrast you see in verse 3 to 4. Paul says, honor widows who are true widows, that is, support those who are truly in need. But, verse 4, if these widows have a family, then the family should care for them, he says. Why? Because look at verse 4. The godliness that pleases God is godliness that cares for family members. See, in Paul's mind, true godliness isn't just about personal piety. No, it's about practical care for those in need. Now, that's how that word godliness is often explained by theologians. It's, it's religion in practice. That's what true godliness looks like. It's practical care even for our family members. Now, that's the first contrast. The second contrast in, is in verse 5 to 6. There Paul describes another qualification of the widow that should be supported by the church. Not only should she be all alone in need, but she needs to be godly. She's someone who, who lives completely for God. Her hope is in the living God to whom she prays day and night. But, verse 6, in contrast to the godly widow who lives for God, the false widow lives for herself. She, she lives for her passions. That's, a, that's what that word self-indulgent means. This widow, Paul warns, may be alive and her, her partner dead, but she's actually spiritually dead. And at this point, at least we need to recognize that Paul is contrasting for us the true widow versus the false widow. One is an ideal to strive for, the other is an example to avoid. I'll say more about that now. now. The third contrast that Paul paints is in verse 7 to 8. Uh, Paul strangely again covers the same ground. He, in order to avoid dishonor and reproach, family must provide for their relatives. But, verse 8, if they fail to provide, he says they've denied the faith. They've denied the faith because they failed to obey the fifth commandment, which is to honor your parents. They've denied the faith because they've disobeyed the call of Christianity, which is all about loving sacrifice. They've denied the faith because they've acted worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers know to care for family members. See, for Paul, the failure of Christians to care for their family is a failure of their Christianity, and this failure brings a reproach to the name of Christ. But again, Paul is quick to move on. The fourth contrast is in verse 9 to 13. And again, just like before, Paul weirdly covers the same ground again. And he again stresses qualifications for the true widow who should be supported. He, he lists three more qualifications. This widow must be elderly, that is above 60. She must have been faithful in marriage. She must be one who has a reputation of good works. And he lists those good works. She should have raised godly children. She should have been hospitable. She should have served the church. She should have cared for the needy. In other words, Paul is saying, care for the godly widow. But, verse 11, 
Do not provide for widows who are ungodly. Do not provide for widows who are marked by Christ-denying passions. Do not provide for widows who are idlers, gossips, busybodies, widows who instead of doing good to others actually harm the church. Support godly widows, he's saying. And so even after these four contrasts, Paul concludes in verse 14 and 15 to 16, and he raises three exhortations, or closes with three exhortations, and here's the application. Here's the, the point I think Paul is getting at. The first application we need to draw from this is this, that widows should pursue godliness. Look at verse 14 to 15. So I would have younger widows, Paul says, marry, uh, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now, what's Paul getting at? Realize Paul has repeatedly contrasted the true godly widow versus the false ungodly widow. Why? To encourage widows to pursue godliness. To pursue, to, to encourage widows to, to use their widowhood for God. Instead of, of giving themselves to, to self-indulgence, instead of using their time for their own pleasures, they should use their widowhood to, 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 to grow in godliness. Whether that is being remarried in godly marriages, whether that is raising children in the ways of God, whether that is seeking the good of others in prayer and care, God should become all the more important for them. I like this insight that Douglas Milne makes of this passage. He says this, The God-fearing widow will accept the loss of her earthly and human supporter as an opportunity to make the Lord her refuge in a new way and to grow in her faith. She will devote the rest of her life to the private and public ministry of prayer, not only for her own needs, but for the needs of others, of her own family, and the family of God. Now, dear friends, I think that's a helpful insight, especially for the many widows and widowers in our church. May I encourage you, dear friend, dear beloved, use your widowhood as an opportunity, as an opportunity to grow in prayer and faith and hope, use it as an opportunity to, to, to serve God in the church. Use it as an opportunity to make much of God, to be used by Him in His church. But, but there's another application that, that Paul would have us make, and that his family should support their relatives. You see that in the first part of 16a. Again and again in verse 4, verse 8, verse 16, Paul makes the same point. The godliness that pleases God, the, the, the marks of having a living faith, is when Christians care for their families. Realize, dear church, our Christianity starts at the home. It starts in how we care for our loved ones. It starts in how we do not neglect one another and do not abandon one another, but rather honor one another and support and care those whom we love. That's where our Christianity starts. That's where it should be seen. That's where the world will see it. Families should support their relatives. And all of this really pushes, I think, the larger point that Paul would have us see, and that is this, the church should care for the needy. 
See, widows should use their widowhood for the sake of God's glory and in service, and families should care for their own so that the church would not be burdened, but actually care for those in need. Look at verse 16b. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, although Paul is addressing a, a particular situation, realize throughout this section, he's in, uh, supplying us with a key principle. And that is this. It is the business of the church, whether we like it or not, to care for the needy. It is the business of the church to care for those in our midst, in our church, who are frail and needy and, 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 and need help. Uh, the needy in our context might not be widows. It, it might be orphans. It might be the unemployed. It might be the terminally sick. It might be the elderly among us. Regardless of the form it takes, the church is called to care. Especially as our first priority, those within the church. Uh, perhaps the most persuasive passage that makes this point is Matthew 25, verse 25 to 14. Uh, in that passage, I'd remind you, Jesus is, is speaking about his second coming, and he mentions how he will welcome his people, how he will separate them from the goats, how he will welcome them to himself, and listen to how he describes them. He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Jesus will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. Who's the brothers there? It's the church. To those who belong to Christ. As you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is saying this. One of the evidences of saving faith, one of the visible displays that we belong to Jesus is the fact as the family of God, we care for one another. As we care for the needy in the church, Jesus says we care for him. And let's not forget the context here. If we are the family of God, then one of the ways we live as the family of God is by honoring one another in our care for each other. Now think of it this way. If it pleases God that families care for their own, then how much more so does it not please God when the church family cares for one another? Dear church, as a family, we should care. We should care for those in our midst who are needy. We should care for those who are struggling. We need to actually be committed to this. We need to stay committed to the needy among us. By God's grace, as a church, we have many ways in which we care. There's Tandanani, there's King's Way, there's Grief Share, Divorce Care, there's Bible Way, Broken Wings, Helping Hands, etc., etc. These are various ways in which we've cared, yet we must stay committed to these. And we must become involved in these. And we mustn't just think that care is the job of others. No, it's the responsibility of the family of God. 
But not only must we stay committed, we should seek ways to be meaningfully caring for those in need. Whether as a church body, whether as small groups, whether as individuals, we should jump to care for others. Why? Because that's what families do. That's what families do when others are in need. So as a family of God, Paul would have us know that we're called to care. That's the first thing I want you to see this morning. The second thing, and I'll try to be a bit briefer with these, I want you to see that a family, the church is a family that supports those who lead. You'll see in verse 17 of chapter 5, Paul changes focus all of a sudden. From discussing the widows in the church, he discusses the elders. Why the sudden change? Well, it seems the church in Ephesus had two major problems. You had false teachers who were leading the church astray, and you had false widows abusing the church. And so Paul, having just exhorted the church to care for true widows, he encourages the church to support and provide for true elders, true teachers. See, just as widows in the church, the church ought to honor its elders. In verse 17 to 25, Paul teases this out, in, and he gives us four rules, if you will, about elders. Firstly, he says, elders should not only receive respect, but remuneration for their labor. See, see, for those who lead well, for those who are diligent in their work, for those who are especially set apart for preaching and teaching, they should be respected for and be provided for. And to motivate this, Paul quotes two passages. He quotes Deuteronomy uh, 25.4 about an ox, not a, not a flattering picture for a pastor, nevertheless, and he quotes Luke 10, verse 7. But both passages make the same point. Those who labor diligently in the gospel should be provided for in the gospel. But there's more. Secondly, Paul says elders should not only be, should, should not be unfairly accused except uh, on the basis of two or three witnesses. You see that in verse 19. Paul knows that, the, knows that malicious rumors and unfounded slander can cause great harm to the church and, and to the elders. And so he, he wants the church to protect her elders from unjust accusation. But that doesn't mean they're beyond criticism. And no, far from it, based on Deuteronomy 19.15, if there are two witnesses or three witnesses, an elder must face those charges. See, elders should be honored and protected by the church, but that doesn't mean they're a law unto themselves. No, they are held accountable by the church. That leads to the third thing Paul says, elders who are truly, elders who are guilty of persisting in sin, he says, should be publicly rebuked. You see that in verse 20 to 21. Uh, the fact that Paul in, in verse 21 charges Timothy before God and the angels to rebuke elders without partiality tells us that this is important for Paul. In light of the false teachers, an elder in unrepented sin must be rebuked. He, he must be disciplined. Why? So as to cause others to fear God, so as to stop others from persisting in sin so as to safeguard the, the dignity of the office of elder. And again, finally, this leads Paul to say that elders should not be appointed too quickly, but should prove themselves with time, verse 22 to 25. 
Paul seems to imply that, that by appointing elders too quickly, Timothy will inadvertently be a partaker in their sins if they prove unfaithful. Uh, that's why in verse 24 to 25, the sins of some and the good works of others aren't always apparent. Therefore, patience is needed for good works and sins to show themselves. Uh, the point is clear. Paul seems to say that just like deacons in 1 Timothy 3, elders should be tested and should be proven faithful and blameless before they are appointed. Now, now that's a lot to take in, and those are things we perhaps need to think about, but, but what's the larger point in our context? Well, it seems to me that Paul is saying this. One way we honor one another is by supporting those who lead. I realize up until this point, Paul has said much about the responsibility of, of elders, First Timothy 3. He's said much about the responsibility of pastors, chapter 4, verse 6 to 16. But here at church, I'm sad to tell you, here he gives you your responsibility to elders and pastors. I realize you are called to support your elders and your pastors. How? Well, firstly, by respecting them, by, by even providing for them. It, it's easy in the church, let's be honest, to become critical of your elders and your pastors, especially after a, a terrible sermon after this this morning. It's easy to become critical. Yet you're called, we're called here to respect them, to, to honor them, to revere them. And so let me ask you the question, do you respect, do you think well of your elders, your pastors? Do, do you pray for them? Is that where your respect is seen for them? You, you care for them? You seek their good in prayer? Or are you just partaking in constant criticism? There's a second way you, you support your elders and pastors. You, you support them by protecting them from slander and, and unfounded attacks. I realize Satan wants nothing more than to not just discourage pastors, but divide the church, to create little camps within the church. See, Paul would have us protect and shield our elders for the sake of their souls, but for the sake of the unity of the church. And so let me ask you, do you entertain malicious thoughts, gossip, slander of others when they come to you? Do you promote unity in the church by speaking well of your elders and your pastors, or are you adding fuel to the fire by entertaining gossip? See, Paul would tell us we ought to protect our pastors and our elders from unfounded attacks and slanders. But thirdly, we support them by holding them accountable so that they would not sin. Uh, Clinton mentioned now a few times that Mike McShane quote that uh, what the church needs is the holiness of its pastors. Well, guess what? The pastors need the church to help them toward holiness. The church needs its uh, congregation to, to come alongside its elders and pastors to, to motivate them and encourage them and exhort them to greater holiness. Let me ask you, do you seek the holiness of your pastors and the elders? Do you draw near to them? Do you come alongside them? Or is it just too easy to criticize from afar? See, we support them by holding them accountable. But fourthly, we support our pastors and elders by raising up men who are proven faithful and ready for that task. I speak to any 
small church. We're not, we don't have that problem here by God's grace, but speak to any small church, and they would tell you good elders do not just pop out of nowhere. No, they are recognized, they are encouraged, they are equipped, and then they are set apart and prayed for. Dear church, do we have a heart to see men raised up to this office? Do we have a heart to recognize gifted men and not just recognize them, but invest into them? To set them apart, to see them flourish for the sake of God's church. See, Paul is saying one way we honor one another is by supporting those who lead us. As a family, we should seek their good because seeking their good ultimately benefits us as the church and as the family. So that's the second thing I want you to see this morning. In third and final place, uh, I want you to see that the church is a family that respects those in authority. Uh, Again, Paul concludes this section and he addresses another group. This time he addresses the slaves and he gives a general principle in verse 1. He says, honor those in authority. That is, treat those over you as worthy of all honor. And he tells us why. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. He says the same thing in Titus 2, verse 9 to 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So Paul is saying, Christian, show honor to those in authority. Why? So that God and the gospel would be honored. Honor others so that God would in return be honored by your witness. And surely we can think of the application to this. Especially it should change the way we see our work life. We might not be slaves, but all of us to one degree or another are under the yoke of employers. And Paul would tell us, even in that employee-employer relationship, believers should treat those above them with all honor. And I'm sorry to break it to you. That means showing them respect in how you think about them, how you speak to them, how you work and and behave. And again, we would do well to remember why this matters. For the honor of God and for the sake of glorifying God. Uh, 1 Peter 2.12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they must see your good deeds and glorify God. But but realize, Paul doesn't just give us the general principle. He actually, his point is to apply that principle, and he applies it specifically to the church in verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says there, For those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve them all the more better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. See, not only must you honor those in authority over you, but if those in authority over you are Christians, guess what? You're still to regard them as worthy of all honor. Now, why would Paul make this application? Well, it would seem that Christian slaves were disrespecting their Christian masters. It seemed that Christians were taking advantage of others because they were brothers in the faith. And Paul is essentially saying that's the opposite of what should be true of us. 
In fact, because your master is your brother, because you both are believers in Christ, Paul says you must serve your master all the more better. You actually ought to serve him not out of a sense of duty, but the delight out of kindness. In verse 2, that's what that word good service means. It's, it has this connotation of, of doing good out of kindness. Why? Because not only does this honor God, but in serving your brother well, in seeking their, their good, you are benefiting them. You are doing them good. Now let's take a step back again and try and see the larger picture. If this is true of how we ought to treat each other out there, then how much more so is it not true for how we treat each other in here? The point is this. Paul would say we should seek to serve one another. We should seek the benefit of others. We should seek to do good to others. Why? Because we are fellow believers in Christ. We are the beloved members of God's family. And that's appropriate to close here because this is the point of this entire passage. As a family, Paul would have us know the church ought to honor one another. We honor each other as we serve each other out there and in here. We, we honor each other as we support those over us who serve us. We honor each other as we care for those in our midst who are struggling and who are in need. As a family, we're called to honor one another. And that's why I've called this title, entitled this sermon, Outdo One Another in Showing Honor. You would have noticed that's from Romans 12.10. What Paul says there perfectly summarizes this passage. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Can I paraphrase that and say, love one another with a familial affection. Love one another as brothers and sisters. And how do you do that? How do we see the outflow of loving each other as a family? Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. See, if we loved one another as a family, then we would honor each other. In fact, Calvin says, the, most, the best fermenter of love is humility, a humility when we honor others. But again, we need to ask the question, why must we love each other? Why must we honor one another? Well, the simple answer is because Christ has loved us. And not only has he loved us, he has honored us as his family. Think of Jesus' death and resurrection for a moment. Think of how Jesus loved us in his death. He, in his death, he, he bore the sins of people who were dead in sin. In his death, he, he took the place of people who were estranged from God. In his death, he, he tasted the wrath of God for people who were enemies of God. In his death, he, he gave himself in love for those who hated God. That's who we are, were. Dear, dear believer, that's who you once were, an enemy of God, dead in your sin, hostile. In love, he gave himself for you. And think of how he has honored you in his resurrection. Because of his resurrection, you are justified, you are forgiven, you are clothed in his righteousness. Because he was raised, you are reconciled to God. You are adopted into his family. 
because he was raised, you are filled with the Spirit who is making you more honorable like Christ. Because he was raised, you have the hope that you will be raised in glory and will be with God forever as his child. Dear Christian, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you have access in one spirit to the Father. You are no longer a stranger or an alien, but you are a fellow citizen of God. You are a fellow saint. You are a family member of the household of God. And, and therefore, because of the gospel, should we not love one another? Because of the gospel, should we not see the church as the family of God, a family that, that comes together in a building, just a building, but that loves one another as brothers and sisters, a, a family that comes together and desires to lift up one another and to give of self for the sake of others, a family that cares for the needy, a family that holds this firm conviction that I belong to these people, Dear friends, is that how you see the church? Do you view it as a family, the family of God because of the gospel of Christ? May the Lord help us to see the church this way. May the Lord help us to, to live as the church in this way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your abundant grace and mercy. We are thankful, dear Lord, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. You've not left us to wallow away in our alienation and hostility to you. But you've sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to, to give himself as a servant, to purchase us, not just as a people, but as a family. Uh, you've given us one another for our good and for the good of one another and, and ultimately for your glory. And so we ask you, Lord, based upon all of this, would you not change our hearts? Would you not change the way we see one another? Would you not help us to see our gatherings on a Sunday morning and in the week and even Sunday evenings as a delight, as an opportunity to love one another, as an opportunity to, to give of ourselves? that we wouldn't just be a people who are here to be entertained, people who are just here to get things done, but rather people who belong, a people who, who are being formed more and more into the image of Christ as a community of love made new by the gospel. Would you not do this, Lord? Would you not do this for our good, but ultimately and preeminently for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.